Happy, happy Easter to you. I'm Dan Seitz, senior pastor here at Hillside, and it's just so great to be together on this day, the most important day of the whole year, the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, an event that drives away all of our despair, a day that wrenches out of our grip, all of our pessimism, an event that makes us feel as free as a flamingo in South Texas. It's true. Hold on, there will be more about that flamingo. But just so we are clear, you know, in this Easter celebration that we're having right here on this hilltop, and in the Easter celebrations that are happening literally around the world, we are not celebrating Jesus's mere resuscitation. On the cross, Jesus did not simply pass out or swoon and then revive in the cool of the tomb. Roman soldiers knew how to kill, and on that Good Friday, they killed Jesus. And what's more, as my own dad reminded me this week, Roman soldiers who were derelict in their duties were brutally punished and often killed. And this means that those soldiers who crucified Jesus had all the motivation in the world to do their job right. And that make, meant making sure that Jesus died on that cross. So today, we are not celebrating the return from a near death. We are celebrating the return of a real one. And neither this morning are we celebrating the mere survival of Jesus's spirit uh, after dying on the cross, as if his physical body didn't make that much difference. You know, that would be better than nothing, I suppose, but it's far less than what happened, and it's far less than what ancient writers, uh, Jewish and Greek, meant by resurrection. For them, resurrection meant bodies. You see, today we are celebrating the return of Jesus, and be clear about this, to transformed bodily life after having been thoroughly dead. And this is not wishful thinking. This is not a fantasy or a feel-good story that we choose to believe against common sense uh, or in the face of the evidence. That Jesus returned to transformed bodily life on the third day after being killed on a Roman cross is by far the best explanation of the historical evidence. You know, we may choose if we want to disbelieve for philosophical reasons or worldview reasons, we may decide at the get-go that dead people just don't come back to life, end of story. But here's the truth. We can't choose to disbelieve on historical grounds because the historical evidence is so powerful, so overwhelming that on the first Easter, Jesus came back to physical life and came back not angry, not seeking revenge for those people who had abandoned him, but he came back calling them friends and wishing them peace. And the truth is no other historical explanation of the facts is viable. Those three facts being these, the empty tomb on the first morning, Jesus appearing to hundreds of people, and this may be my favorite one, the overnight 
transformation of the disciples from scared rabbits into courageous lions. Lions who planted the seeds of a worldwide church. There are Christians all around the globe celebrating with us today. Christians who change the world and who make everybody act and think in a very, very particular way. Those Christians change the world in a way that has affected everyone, even if we're not totally aware of it. Again, Jesus didn't swoon on that first Good Friday. Roman executioners knew their trade and they did it well. But think about this. Even if they had botched that execution and Jesus never actually died, even if, think about it, no one among the scores of people who saw Jesus alive after that first Easter would have possibly interpreted his appearance as a triumphant resurrection from the dead. Think about it. Think about the state that Jesus would have been in after having endured the cross and after having endured everything he endured the day of. I mean, had Jesus miraculously survived the crucifixion, he would have been in horrible shape. He would have been fit only for an IC unit, ICU unit just holding on to life. But that wasn't him at all. He was healthy. In fact, he was powerful. He was able to pass through doors. He was able to eat. He was even able to barbecue for his disciples. And you got to be alive to barbecue, don't you? Think about this. Neither did Jesus' disciples steal the body, as some people have kind of desperately suggested. They would have had absolutely no motivation to do that. In the worldview of first century Jews, a dead Messiah was a failed Messiah. And think about this. Even if they had stolen the body for totally inexplicable reasons, they wouldn't have gone to their deaths claiming that he was alive, which they did. People do not die for a lie. What does this all mean? It means this. You know, when we plunge deeply into the historical case for the resurrection and we discover just how solid the ground is under our feet, we discover new joy bubbling up in our hearts, a giddy kind of joy. And you know what we discover? We discover that the world is not a grim tragedy, but a glorious triumph whose best days are ahead. And you know what else we discover? Our best days are ahead as well. That's what Easter means, all right? Last week in our Palm Sunday message, we mused over Psalm 118 when we considered what this famous rescue story uh, of a king uh, told us about the meaning of Palm Sunday. This week, we're taking a similar tack. We're going back to Psalm 118. And uh, we are looking at what it means for Easter. And I think that when we look carefully at Easter through the lens of Psalm 118, three spectacular realities explode before us. So let's get right to it. Starting with verses 17 through 18, the ancient king says this, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Here, the ancient king who prefigures Jesus exults that even though things looked terribly bleak for him. He says, with his enemies swarming around him like killer bees, the Lord saved him. 
Well, friends, if Psalm 118 is ultimately Jesus' story, and Jesus' story ultimately climaxes in a resurrection, what do we learn first about the meaning of Easter? And I think it's pretty front and center. Easter means this. It means that those who belong to the risen Jesus will not ultimately be given over to death either. And just like Jesus passed through death and came out on the other side, so will we believers. Now, surprisingly, as we're going to see in the message series that begins next week, the resurrection, the biggest surprise ever, eternal life is not actually the punchline that the New Testament writers really emphasize, but that Easter means that death is not the end is true nonetheless. Easter means that when we or the believers that we love do eventually experience the separation of body and soul, whether through cancer or dementia or a car crash or just simple old age, it means that we, they, will be put back together for eternal embodied life on a restored earth. Now, let me say something. The specifics, the particularities of this first Easter implication are very hard, even for seasoned Christians to get, because candidly, a lot of our songs, a lot of our spiritual slogans and sound bites kind of point us in the wrong direction. Now, listen to me here. Easter does not basically mean that there is life after death for Christians. It's more specific than that. Easter means that there is life after life after death for Christians on a restored earth, remarried to heaven, which now is its estranged spouse. Easter means that creation itself has been renewed in principle and one day will be renewed in entirety for God's people to enjoy forever and ever and ever. Someday God's glorious presence will fill the entire earth like it does heaven already. You see, Jesus' resurrected body was the first patch of that new creation and that new world. Easter means that death has not just been redefined. Easter means that death has been defeated, and that changes everything. Recently, uh, Allison's and my good friend Dan Cole lost his wonderful wife, Jan, after 54 years of marriage. In fact, just last Saturday, we were participating in the memorial service, and uh, these two, Dan and Jan Cole, have been uh, Allison and my friends for years and years, and they've been my friends and mentors since I was 17 years old. I'm 52 now. And my twin brother and I met Dan and Jan at a place called Camp Hammer, summer camp in the Santa Cruz Mountains, when we were 17, 1987. And talking about a little patch of heaven on earth, that was Camp Hammer. But anyway, Dan and Jan came to Camp Hammer to speak. Dan, Jan's final two years were pretty wrenching due to dementia. And her husband, Dan, 
a retired Christian school superintendent just threw himself into caring for her, doing everything that needed to be done. Talking about in sickness and in health, he lived it. Now he's alone. And this is an almost unbearable loss. His best friend, his number one fan, his hiking partner, his emotional ballast. Notice that I said almost unbearable. What makes this bearable is what Easter promises. And Easter means that someday Dan is going to be reunited with Jan. And the Jan to whom he will be reunited is not just the inner spiritual part of Jan, her soul or spirit, as precious as that was, but the Jan that Dan is going to be reunited with was the tall, radiant, physical Jan whom he met and fell in love with on a volleyball court when they were teenagers at camp. You see, Dan is going to mourn, but because Jan was his best, because Dan Jan was his best friend, his ministry partner. But here's the truth: his mourning is going to have a very different cast. It's going to have a very different hue, and that's because of the light of Easter. Easter means not just that Jesus passed through death to the other side, to new embodied life. Easter means that everybody who belongs to Jesus will also pass through death to eternal, glorious, embodied life. And that makes death, the death of our friends, the death of our parents, the death of our husband, the death of our children, if at some point we have to swallow that bitterest of all pills, it makes it bearable. Easter means that death has been defeated for all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. What else? Look at Psalm 118, 19 through 20. It says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And here in this ancient rescue story, we have the king arriving in Jerusalem and asking to be uh, admitted through the gates of the city. Well, if we read Psalm 118 prayerfully and imaginatively as a prophecy of Jesus and his holy week accomplishments, what do we conclude? Let me suggest this to you, friends. Easter confirms that Jesus alone is the gate to God's presence. And listen to this. You know, people in today's world, as you know, they're highly interested in spirituality. And, and many people on the planet, and in fact, really most people on the planet, most people, if you scratch down deep, they know that naturalism, sort of the philosophical idea that nature is all there is, there's nothing more than the material world, they know that that cannot account for reality. And most people look around the world and they rightly conclude that the world is not an accident. The world, with all of its mystery and its beauty, its finely calibrated order from brain cells to supernovas, it did not just puff into existence. And the earth itself shouts out, I was made. <laughs> and most people deep down recognize it. Think about this wonder for a second. The earth is finite in composition, right? Our earth does not receive deliveries from cosmic Amazon, right? And yet generation after generation finds that it contains within itself enough resources for supporting billions 
of people. And admittedly, there's a lot of deprivation on the planet. Millions of people don't have enough to eat. They don't have enough uh, medical care. They don't have enough or the right place to live. But of course, that's nothing to do with any inherent lack in the earth, right? There's plenty of food, plenty of resources for everybody to be taken care of. But if we pull back from that strange fact that's right in front of us of the earth's fruitfulness, we've got to conclude or at least strongly consider that it's not an accident. Somebody designed it for life. Or similarly, think about the wonder of the Earth's placement for a moment. I mean, there's nothing that we can see with our powerful telescopes that appears responsible for its, where it's perched. And that's why for many people, when they look out into the heavens, it's self-evident that some intelligence, some loving intelligence made us and placed us where we are Easter points to the identity of our maker. Anyone who rises from the dead is someone to listen to about ultimate reality. And Jesus claimed that the God of Israel, whom the people of Israel had experienced for centuries, Jesus said he made us. Jesus also claimed to be the exclusive gate to God. Listen to what his biographer John says about, says that he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What does all this mean? Here's what it means. It means that Jesus-centered spirituality is true spirituality. It means that Jesus-centered spirituality and faith is the real deal. It means that all humans everywhere should focus on Jesus as the face of God and the gate to God. Jesus, people should look to Jesus to understand reality. People should look to Jesus to understand God's identity. People should look to Jesus to understand what God desires. People should imitate Jesus and receive his spirit to live the life that God desires and can actually justify on the last day. Easter confirms that Jesus is the embodiment of God himself, that Jesus is the path to God. And isn't it wonderful that he is? I mean, think about the life that Jesus lived. Would there be anyone else we desire to be the face of and the place of God, the man who lived the pristine life like nobody else ever lived, the man who with every last ounce of strength and without one second of compromise ever loved, healed, taught, welcomed. Can you think of anybody who even compares? No one. One more Look at verse 25. Here the ancient king says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. What do we have here? It's kind of curious. In this ecstatic celebration of deliverance, we have a prayer for more success. And again, if we read prayerfully and imaginatively, what might this prophetic psalm lead us to conclude about all that Easter means? Let me suggest this one to you. And I love it. Easter means that stunning, new, saving works of God are possible. If the Lord can bring back his son from the grave, the son who defeated evil not by bashing it, but by letting it do its worst to him, what can he not do? 
What new kingdom victories should we not pray for? What rescue plan should we not hatch and execute? What stunning reversals should we not pray for in our personal lives? Whether, say, the healing of an estranged marriage or recovery from an addiction. You know, a few weeks ago, I read a story about how six nuns transformed India. Back in 1947, India was in bleak shape. It had been devastated by World War II and then by partition. Its biggest cities were overrun by refugees. The country was simply teetering. And among its struggles were totally inadequate medical care. Just thousands, maybe millions of people were dying from totally treatable diseases. Get this, in 1941, of every 1,000 babies born, 158 would die in their first year. That was India in the middle of last century. Some Christians decided to do something about it. Six resurrection-minded Christians, three teachers, three nurses, all nuns, moved to Mokama, India to start a hospital. When they arrive in December of 1947, they have absolutely nothing. They go into an empty warehouse, no hospital beds, no medicine, no running water, absolutely nothing. But here's what they do have, Easter faith. And they believe that on the first Easter, God raised Jesus, established him as the true Lord of the whole world, and they pray, and they persevere, and they begin to work, establishing friendships and partnerships with skilled nationals. They set about building a hospital by July 19, 1948. And they write home to their families and parents, help us, pray with us. We want to get this hospital up and running. On July 19th, they open their doors they don't even have a doctor at that point. Too many patients have been lining up for treatment, so they refuse to wait. Five days later, on July 24th, a young doctor answers their newspaper ad and becomes their attending physician, and immediately they begin saving the lives of first scores, then hundreds, then ultimately thousands of people. And soon after that, they start a nursing school, a nursing school which still exists and since 1950 has trained generations of nurses who themselves have fanned out throughout the country, planting clinics and hospitals. And the hospital nursing school they established, Nazareth Hospital, still exists today. Isn't that amazing? The New York Times writer Giotti Totem recently wrote that these Christian women, with Easter as the cornerstone of their spiritual consciousness, transformed India by transforming healthcare. Six women with resurrection in their hearts. Easter means that innumerable new successes are possible. With evil defeated, Jesus on the world's throne, the Holy Spirit having been poured out to all who believe in him, all kinds of new helping and healing ministries are possible from Parkmead, our own neighborhood, to Pakistan. What does this mean for us today? It means that Easter is the time. It's always the time, but Easter is really the time to wrap our lives or rewrap our lives around the sun who is the true king of the world. Nobody compares to him. Nothing compares to what God has achieved through him in renewing the world through him. Nothing, nothing is more important than wrapping our lives around him. 
And at least at Hillside, you know, the primary place, as Randy said, for experiencing the risen king, for getting to know him, for learning his very distinct way in the world, which is particular, for following him as the true Lord, is the small group. At Hillside, small groups come in many, many shapes and sizes. Sometimes for fun, we call them birdhouses. And we have a slogan here at the church inspired by a, a famous tree on the Moraga Lafayette Trail that's filled with birdhouses. And the slogan is, one tree many birdhouses. And what we mean by that is we want Hillside to be one church with many small groups. We desire every Hillsider, whether a believer or maybe a Hillsider who's not a believer, doesn't believe in Jesus, but is here to investigate Christianity. Hillside exists for you just as much as it exists for the first category, but we desire every Hillsider to be in a home group if you desire it. And the reason is it's in the small group huddled over God's word that the risen Christ becomes the most real. And we experience the risen Christ as we eat together and laugh together and talk with each other and grow in friendship. We experience the risen Christ as we huddle together over his word, letting it speak to us. We, we experience the risen Christ when in the power of the Holy Spirit, we don't just study, but we think and pray together, God, what are you saying to me in this? How are you directing me in my life, my career, my marriage, whatever? There's no better time than now to join a group. You know, recently our small groups team of Marilyn Taglarini, Gary and Jane Chin just created this beautiful brochure that Randy flashed for you that tells you everything you need to know about joining a group. You know, some of these groups, are. this is a wonderful thing about Hillside, are part of larger, excellent teaching ministries. And four of them are Oasis, The Well, Kairos, and Wednesday Morning Men's great place, the ideal place to find a small group. Other groups meet in homes. You know what? Teenagers are included too. The centerpiece of our student ministries are small groups because just as much as adults, in fact, let's face it, even more than adults, teens need deep relationships with their peers and they need consistent spiritual mentors from adult shepherds. Right now they have that in Riptide and Edge. They have leaders like Grant Freeman and Marnie Perini who are caring for them and binding them together. You know, we have big hopes, big dreams for small groups here at Hillside. And although we've championed them before, we know it's critical for forming people deep in Jesus. And we're determined to help every Hillsider who wants one find a group. There's nothing like Easter. There's nothing like it at all. There's nothing like the way Easter turns us upside down turns our sadness inside out, fills our hearts and our tanks with hope. And at the beginning of this message, I said that Easter makes us feel free, as free as a flamingo in South Texas. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Just a few weeks ago, I read this nature story that I loved. David Foreman, uh, a sportsman uh, in Texas, he heads out on his boat for a morning of fishing. And what does he see uh, out in the morning mist? He sees this tall pink bird standing on one leg. He sees a flamingo. And there's only one problem. There are no flamingos in South Texas. And he knows this for a good reason. This guy happened to grow up in a bird sanctuary. He can't believe his eyes, so he zooms in the camera just as far as he can get so he can get a look at this bird, and sure enough, it's a flamingo. So he snaps a picture, 
And he heads home and he contacts wildlife officials who are thrilled to get the picture because it confirms what they have long suspected on the basis of other sightings. You see, 17 years before, an African flamingo, known then as inmate 492 of the Sedgwick County Zoo in Wichita, Kansas, pulled off an escape. And zookeepers recorded the date he high-feathered it out. July 4th, 2005, Independence Day. You could not make this up. Yes. You see, number 492's handlers made an elementary mistake. They forgot to trim his wings, which you do to keep flamingos in the zoo. Well, their oversight was Flamingo 492's opportunity, and he flew the coop, literally. And he didn't escape alone. He had an accomplice, Flamingo 347, who sadly was never seen again. But, I know, but Flamingo, it, it, it would have been better. It would have been better if the, if the accomplice survived, but we are obligated to the truth with these stories. Flamingo 492, he made it all the way to South Texas. And 17 years later, he lives as a free bird in the wetlands. And get this, he even has a girlfriend. He does, a Caribbean flamingo that was probably blown north from the Gulf during a tropical storm. And bird experts say that they are of different species, but similar enough so they would have been happy to see each other in a lonely world. All right. People online have gone crazy over this Pixar-worthy story of Flamingo 492's flight to freedom. In fact, no longer is he known as 492. Wildlife officials have renamed him. He is now Pink Floyd. All true. <laughs> We love this story. We love this story because we love freedom. We love stories about unexpected escapes. And we love learning about liberation when all we thought was that bondage was possible. That's Easter. That's the true story of the world. Because of what God did through his son's death on the cross and resurrection on the third day. On the third day, as a matter of history, God the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Spirit, came through on his ancient promise to liberate the whole world. And that's why Easter is the best day of the year. That's why Easter is the best day of every year. The promise of a future better than we could possibly believe. Let me pray for us. Father, the joy of Easter is so great we can barely take it in. So many of our hopes come to naught. So many of the things that we anticipate and dream about just never happen. But this one will. This one has. Your son's return from the grave happened in history 
And because it did, the world is ultimately a comedy rather than a tragedy. As challenging and as grueling as this present moment is with war and pandemic. We thank you that because Jesus returned from the grave, the world has been saved, and we who belong to Jesus will have a permanent and glorious home in it, enjoying it in permanent and glorious new bodies that never fail us. Help us to live every day of this new year with Easter vision and Easter hope and directed by Easter priorities. And we pray this in the name of the one who lived and died and rose again. Amen.